Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Everyone should be turned there by now. God willing, we'll be expounding verse 4, possibly get into verse 5. We'll see how the, how the message goes. For the vast majority of this book, we've been studying God's words and His warnings to the rebellious people of Israel. And then suddenly a couple of weeks ago, the people of Israel broke their silence and we heard from them. They responded to the judgment that God said would come upon them. And Israel's words were very prophetic for they spoke of Israel returning to God at the end of time. It's going to be a wonderful occasion in the past few verses Israel spoke of them coming to the knowledge of the Lord their God coming to uh, acknowledge their sin and to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ in the end times all that's prophesied in the book of Hosea that's going to happen and we've joyfully studied that the past couple of weeks but as we move forward in our study today the Holy Spirit now in verse 4 turns our attention away from the future of Israel and back to the present condition Israel was in at that time. In Hosea 6.4, Israel quits talking and God begins speaking again to those rebellious Jews at that time, asking them, look now in your text in verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? Now remember, Ephraim refers to the northern kingdom of Israel, while Judah refers to the southern kingdom. And in this verse, God speaks as if He's at His wit's end. You ever had someone that you've tried and tried and tried to deal with, tried to help them, and you finally just say, oh, what am I going to do with you? That's how God's talking here. He's speaking like He's at His wit's end, as if... He's tried everything with these people. And now he's at a complete loss of what to to do with the people he loves. With the wife who left him. Whose father Abraham he had made the covenant with. And since Israel, because of their godless heart, had split into two kingdoms over a civil dispute... God cannot address them as one nation. He can't address them as a nation that is united, but He has to address them as a nation that's divided. So He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O, look back in your text, O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? Although it sounds like God is perplexed and doesn't know what to do with His people, the truth is just the opposite. God is not posing this question to Israel looking for their advice. He's asking them this question as a way of arousing their conscience by helping them convict themselves of their own crimes against Him. I believe God is saying, tell me Israel, what will it take for you to get your hearts right and serve me? What do I need to do to win your affection? And your faithfulness back to me. Tell me Israel where did I fail you. And give you cause to forsake me. What have I not done for you. What have I not provided for you. That these false gods are doing and providing for you now. 
Where did I go wrong, Israel? What shall I do unto you? And the answer, of course, is God never failed them. God never did them wrong. God always keeps His promises and God always kept His promises for them. God always provided for them. And God had gone above and beyond what any reasonable person would expect a faithful husband to do to win his unfaithful wife, Israel, back to himself. What shall I do for you, Israel? What should I do for you, Judah? And there wasn't a single thing that these children of Abraham could point at and say, here's where you failed us, Lord, right here. This is why we left you and went to go serve other gods, which, of course, there are no other gods. They're all false gods. This is, this is what you should do. This is why we, if you would do this, we would come back to you. But we've had to go to these false gods here, Lord, and you should be ashamed of yourself. No, that's not what's happening here. He's asking them as a way to convict them of, ah, what were we thinking of? I want you to think, and I want to remind you that when God speaks to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it's, these things are written, the Bible says, for our admonition. They're written to teach us. They're not written down so we can say, oh, those rebellious Jews. No. Those Jews aren't... The nation of Israel was no more rebellious to God then than the nation of America is now. No more. The Israelites were examples for all of us. And how God had to deal with Israel is an example of how God has to deal with all of us. They're learning objects here in the Old Testament. Of what God is doing with Israel, He'll have to do with the rest of the world. The Israelites were just like us. They were sons of Adam. And they all descended from him just like we did. And we all have that same fallen flesh that we have to contend with. I want you to think of Adam and Eve for a moment with me this morning. Think of them back in the Garden of Eden where this whole sin and rebellion started on earth anyway. God put them in this place called Eden. It was paradise. And he tells them, of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat. But there's just this one tree that I don't give to you. This one tree that I restrict from you because it's bad for you. Don't choose to eat from that tree. To choose to eat from that tree will be rebellion against me. You'll be choosing to not follow my leadership, but to break away from my lordship over you and to go about and serve yourself instead of me. But everything else, this abundant paradise, there's gold, there's water, there's all kinds of uh, 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 fruit. Don't ever think that the forbidden fruit was so good that God wouldn't let them have it. A lot of times, television and people want to make it look that way. Oh, it's a delicious, it should, be a, it should be sinful. Or that's the forbidden fruit. Oh, it's really, really good. Not that way. God never withholds good 
from his people. He only withholds what's bad for them from his people. And so here they were with all of this. What did God not supply for them to eat? That they should forsake the food he gave them and go after some strange food over here that did not belong to them. When had God lied to them in the past to cause them to not believe what he said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And to believe a serpent, a creature God created over the creator who created him. When had God not loved them? He gave Adam a wife. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. So he gave him what was good for him. When had God not provided for Adam and Eve? Perhaps God had failed to warn them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No. We know better than that. I can just hear God looking at Adam now. After he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, What shall I do unto thee, Adam? <laughs> just like he did with Israel. What shall I do unto thee? Look back with me to the Garden of Eden. Think back to the Garden of Eden and see if you can point your finger at one thing God failed to do for the people he created. That would cause them to forsake the life he had given them and choose death instead. That's what God is doing here. For the nation of Israel. In the book of Hosea. What shall I do unto you? If you take your Bibles. Or look up here on your screens. If you don't have time. To turn there. But write in your notes. Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 1 through 7. Isaiah 5. Verse 1 through 7. And I want you to look. At what God said to the nation of Israel. Through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1 through 7. God says. Now will I sing to my well beloved. A song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. So God's speaking through Isaiah here. And Isaiah says. I'm going to sing a song of my well-beloved concerning his vineyard. Isaiah is going to sing a song about a vineyard that God has. And he says, here's how the song goes. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Now, I don't know if that was a tune Isaiah sung it in, but I bet it was something like that, Abigail. And he fenced it, verse 2, and gathered out the stones thereof. You know how it is when you plant a vineyard or you plant a garden. You've got to till it all up. If there's rocks in there, you chunk them out. I've got some squash on the side of my house. And I had to put a net over that squash. Why? My chickens like squash too. <laughs> so what did I do? I fenced it, you see. I protected my fruit that I was growing. I tilled the soil. I provided the, the, the fertilizer that it needed. I gave it the water that it needed. 
I put the fence around it. He says, and planted it in the choice, with the choicest vine. He put the best vine there and built a tower in the midst of it. And also made a wine press therein. Now that's pretty good planning, isn't it? He says, And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. Now I know all about that. I've got wild grapes growing at my house right now. Mustang grapes. Y'all ever eaten Mustang grapes? Got it growing in my I got a bunch of grapes in my house right now. They make good jelly, but they don't make good eating. They're sour. Oh, there's some sour grapes. But they're good for you. They're just not fun to eat. Now, on the other hand, if you had some of those big old fat sweet purple grapes that you get in the store. That's the kind of grapes you want to cultivate right there. That's the kind of grape God planted in His vineyard. The choicest vine. He plants the choicest vine. He takes the rocks out. He's got a, a tower, which probably is a water tower. He's got all the, the things He needs. He puts a fence around it. It's a very fruitful hill. There's nothing wrong with the ground. The ground's perfect. And he waits like I'm waiting for my Mustang grapes. He waits and waits and waits for the grape to produce and then finally to grow up and get fat. And then the grape has to get ripe. And then he goes, he finally goes to get his fruit from that vine. And it's sour grapes. They're wild grapes. They, were, they, they didn't produce the fruit of the choice vine that he planted. It's kind of a head scratcher. How could I have planted something so nice and did everything right and they're putting out these sour grapes? What's this all about? That's the song that Isaiah is singing here. And so he says, he, he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants, O, o inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. This is God speaking now. I want you to judge between me and my vineyard. You see what he's doing here? He's calling on them to judge. Sometimes you get an argument with someone. You have a family argument. Maybe uh, Sarah and, and uh, Miss Becky are arguing about something. And they go to Brother Andy. And they want him. Now tell us which one of us is right here. And they, they're hoping they can say, see, I told you. you do, so we do that, don't we? That's how we do things. And so, so, so God is coming here and he says, listen, Jerusalem. L listen, men of Judah. I, I'm asking you, I want you to judge between me and my vineyard. Now Jerusalem is the vineyard. But in the parable here, He's talking about the vineyards to kind of set them apart from it so they can look at it the way God sees it. Verse 4, what could have been done more to my vineyard? Remember what God is asking Israel here in Hosea, what should I do unto thee? That's what the same thing he's saying here. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done with it? Wherefore, 
Or why, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? You tell me as a farmer, you tell me as a vineyard owner, what could I have done different than what I did? Is it my fault? I put, I used the choice as vine. I gave it plenty of water. I fenced it to protect it. I planted it in the right ground. I've done everything as a farmer that a farmer should do. Is it my fault or is it the vine's fault? Which one of us is wrong? Verse 5. After asking them to judge, naturally the conclusion is, no, there's nothing else you could have done. It was the vine's fault. Verse 5. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. (laughs) I will take away the hedge thereof. I'm going to take the fence down. Like me with the squash. I'm going to take the net off the squash. And it shall be eaten up. See? God said, I'm going to let the chickens get it. I'm going to let the raccoons get it. I'm going to let the birds of the air get it. It shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof. And it shall be trodden down. The deer. The hogs. The wild animals. They'll just come walk all over it and eat it up. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned. Nor digged. You know what he's saying there? I know all about that. Uh, Sometimes I used to have grapes that I planted. That weren't wild. And I'd, in the fall, I would go and I'd take the head trimmer and I'd trim them down. And, the, and then in the spring, they'd all sprout back out and be fruitful again. It's part of caretaking for your vineyard. I know about digging, too. Brother Shepherd uh, has been bringing me some fish guts for my garden. Fish carcasses. And, uh, well, after I've already planted my garden... You know, then there's only one way you can fertilize it after that with with fish, and that is you dig around it. And then, uh, like I had some green beans, and I had plants over here on this side, plants on this side. I just dug a row right in between them so it wouldn't get the roots, and I just planted little fishes all in between them and covered them up. And my green beans have been eating those fish ever since, and we've been eating the green beans. It's been a great thing. So God says, I'm not going to prune anymore. I'm not going to dig anymore. Do you know what he's saying? I'm not going to take care of you anymore. I'm not going to put any more time into you. I'm not going to invest my effort in you any longer. You want to go serve other gods? I will let you go. You want to depart from me and be free from serving me? Have at it. I'm not trying anymore. I'm not going to waste my breath on you. You know, that's what God did when He closed out the Old Testament. He stopped talking. They went 400 years silent until finally John the Baptist came. And we had another prophet trying to get them to come back and serve God again. And they crucified Him. The one that John the Baptist spoke of. So he says, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. 
I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Israel, you're the vineyard I'm speaking of. In the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. You people in Judah, you people in Israel, the northern and the southern kingdoms. You're my vineyard. You're the plan I've cared about. You're the one I've invested all this time in. You're the one I love. And he looked for judgment. He looked for them to, to have judgment and to judge between right and wrong. But, be, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. What he's saying is, is this. I look for you folks to do good, but instead you oppressed people. I look for you all to serve me and to make your fellow man rejoice. Instead you made them cry. You look at our nation today. You look at our leadership today. And by the way, don't blame the leaders. The leaders were put there by the people. We're getting what we deserve. But you look and see if they're not trying to oppress the people under them. And they are. Recently, someone laughed at me for stating that we were born in sin because of Adam. As I said, the people of Israel here, they're no different than us. I looked at the White House the other day, and did y'all see the rainbow flag put up between the two American flags? The same height. I think, oh, dear God. It scares me to see that. Right in the face of God, they're saying, this is what our country is all about. What are you going to do about it? Bold in the face of God. This is what we are. They're tempting God. And when I see that, I think of America. What more could He have done with us? Running around in air-conditioned buildings. Inventions, hospitals, fine medicine. The best of education in the world. And look what we do with it. Get out, God. We don't want you. We're going to go serve our false gods of evolution. Our false gods. We'll go to the people of the East and start believing like them or whatever. Or believe nothing at all. We're doing just what Israel did. We're doing just what Adam did. And again, someone recently laughed at me. And mocked me for stating that we were born in, in sin because of Adam. They thought the idea of them having to choose Jesus as their Savior on account of what Adam did. Made no sense at all and was laughably unfair. Why should I have to choose Jesus because of something he did, Adam did. Why should I be condemned for a choice Adam made? Listen to that rebellious heart. The truth is, by rejecting Jesus as their Savior today, they're making the same choice Adam did back then. No, I'm not going to do that. Adam rejected the tree of life, and by them rejecting Jesus, they are too. 
There's no difference. And to those people, God asked the same question. What shall I do unto you? I fulfilled the law for you. I came. I was born of a virgin. I obeyed the law for you. I lived for you. I died for you. I rose again for you. And I offer eternal life freely to you. If only you will receive it. I give you the choice to choose against what your father Adam did. And to regain the life that was taken away. But instead, you've chosen to reject what I offer. And you're making the same decision Adam did. You're still rejecting me. You've chosen to take another path. To make for yourself another God after your own liking. Whatever that is. And if you're here this morning. Or you're watching online at home. Or wherever. Maybe like Brother James in your, in your van or something. Your truck somewhere. If you've not accepted. The, the, the fact that you're a sinner. And if you have not accepted the fact that God's Word is His record to you. The Bible is God's record to you. We read this morning in Sunday school a genealogical record going from Jesus all the way back to the first man, Adam. You talk about historical record. Going back to the very first man who ever lived. And God has kept track of it and track of it. And He has explained everything that's happened. He showed us what He's done for it, what the problem is, and what the cure is. I'm asking you this morning, what more could God have done? If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, what shall He do for you? What do you want Him to do? Someone says, well... If He would come down from heaven and appear to us, then we will believe. He's already done that and they crucified Him. They won't believe. They'll reject Him anyway because they're rebellious hearts. I used to, when I was a criminal investigator for DPS, I used to go out... If I wasn't swamped down with cases, a lot of times I just swamped down with cases. But sometimes if I wasn't, you know what I'd do? I'd go out and I'd look. I, I, I was in auto theft. I'd go and I'd look for stolen cars. And you know what? It's really not that difficult. I remember I'd go through, I'd go through parking lots sometimes. If I saw, if I looked inside as I was driving through, if I looked inside and I saw the steering column busted, and you look down the floorboard and there's fresh plastic down there from that steering column, you can see where they took a screwdriver and went up underneath the handle of that door to get in. Somebody stole that car. I get on the radio, call the license plate, Beep. vehicle's 1099, 1020. And there was a vehicle stolen. Where are you? You okay? Heard that all the time. I go out to construction sites and find construction equipment that was stolen. Same kind of signs. 
You know what? When I saw those vehicles, I could tell. Let me ask you this. If you walked outside right now, and you saw a vehicle, let's say you saw Brother Shepherd's vehicle. Nice pickup. You during your pickup this morning? You saw, your, you saw Brother Shepherd's vehicle. We go outside after church. You see Brother Shepherd's vehicle sitting on cinder blocks and his tires gone. What conclusion are you going to come to? Someone answer that for me. So, someone stole it. Are you going to come to the conclusion that over a process of millions and millions of nanoseconds, those wheels evolved and went somewhere else and got on another vehicle? No. You're going to come to the immediate conclusion when you see that somebody stole his wheels. You come to that logical conclusion, but you know what? You never saw the thief with your own eyes. Folks, you look at me. You look at this man right here. You hearing the logic and intelligence coming out of my voice? I'm no accident, folks. I was put here on purpose. Somebody loved me and somebody figured out how to put a thumb and fingers together and make a grip. How to give me a brain that can, 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 can perceive knowledge, can communicate intellectually to somebody else. Let's say we were in a jungle together. We're in a jungle. I've got a machete. We're chopping through the the vines and the and, and the and the brush and we're we're smacking mosquitoes on the back of our necks and, and suddenly as we're we're going through together we come up on a cleared spot. And there you see straight rows with vegetables planted. You see clothes hanging out on a clothesline. You see a little hut with smoke coming out of a chimney and you can smell fresh bread are you going to think millions of years ago there must have been a tornado come through here and it whipped all this or, or all the jungle just evolved into this rut and you wouldn't think that what would you think when you come to that clear spot somebody tell me what would you think when you saw the house and the rose and all that what would you think Somebody lives here. Somebody planted that garden. The jungle's chaotic. It's wild. Somebody planted that garden. Somebody built a fire. Folks, you tell me. What is more complex? The rose in the garden? Or the DNA in your body? What's more sophisticated? What greater work is there? Building a fire, building a hut, or building a man that builds the hut. If you can see a hut and come to the conclusion a man did it, then you should be able to see a man and come to the conclusion somebody else did that. Because the man that built the hut is much greater than the hut that was built. That's logic, folks. 
And if you can stay in this world and God give you the common horse sense to look at each other and see the evidence. Yes, we may not see the thief that took off the wheels. We may not see the thief that, that took off the, uh, uh, the, the, the plastic on the steering column. We may not see the man that put the rose in the garden. But we should know. Somebody put the hut in the jungle. Somebody put you in this world. Don't tell me you've got to see God. To believe that God exists. I saw the work of the thief. I believe the thief was there. I see the work of God. You. The birds. The clouds. The outer space. The order of it all. And I know that God is there. So God asks you this morning, if you're here this morning, or you're watching online this morning, and you have not accepted the truth of God's Word, and put your trust in His Son, that His Word tells you He sent to deliver us from this fallen world, what more could God do than what He's already done? I'm going to tell you this. He's not going to do anything else. Just like he did with Israel. He says, I'm done. Oh, Joseph. Excuse me, Jacob. When, when Joseph went to Egypt, sold as a slave, Jacob thought his son was dead. They came back and told him, your son is the ruler of Egypt. He said, y'all could have waited. Don't be messing with this old man. My son's dead. I saw the, the blood and stuff on the, you know, on the clothes y'all brought back. Don't make my heart hurt any worse by teasing me. The next thing you know, he looked out and he heard the rumblings and saw the dust of all these Egyptian chariots coming with all kinds of good on them. He looks up and he says, My boy's alive. He, in fact, his words were, It is enough. My son Joseph lives. I will go and see him before I die. Folks, the same thing this morning. Look at what all God's done. And you need to be able to say, it is enough. My Savior lives. I will go to the cross and see Him before I die. What more can I do for you? God says, I will do no more. He has given you teachers to explain His Word to you. And plead with you on His behalf to be reconciled to Him through Jesus. And if after all of this that we spoke about this morning... You still decide to turn your nose up at the God who loves you, the great plan of salvation He's provided for you, then you, my friend, are no different than Adam. You are no different than Israel. And you're as much of a fool as the devil himself. For after he rejected God, he did not have the same opportunity to be saved that you do. Someone might say, I know what God can do for me. I had a loved one who died when I was too young, and I asked God to let them live, but God did not let them live. He let them die. I'm mad at God. Had God not taken my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, or my parent away from me, or had God not let me suffer some great tragedy when I was a child or whatever it was, maybe I was abused, I don't know, then maybe I would acknowledge my sin and receive His Son. 
That's what God can do for me. Occasionally I hear people speak that way. Perhaps you do too. But they do so foolishly as well. For it was man, not God, who brought that sin and sorrow into the world. God's the one trying to fix it. If you reject God's eternal salvation from that sin and sorrow, then you, not God, are subjecting yourself to the same sin and sorrow that you're complaining about for all eternity. God looks at us today. He looks at America today. He looks at people who can sit in church and hear His Word and not trust His Son as their Savior. And He says, What more shall I do unto you, my people? I have sent you prophets, evangelists. I came myself in human flesh to suffer and died for your sins. I've taken your guilt on myself. What more can I do to prove my love for you? God said, what shall I do unto you, Israel? Look back in the text as we begin to close now. For your goodness is as a morning cloud. You know what a morning cloud is? That's what we call fog. You don't go out at... 1 p.m. when the sun's up and it's super hot outside. And so, boy, it's foggy out here. Well, it was so foggy on my way home from work today. We don't do that. Fog is a low-lying cloud that we typically see in the cool of the morning as we travel on our way to work or maybe get up in the country and look out and sit on the hillside. But as soon as the sun rises, as soon as the heat is on, the cloud quickly vanishes away. There were times in Israel's past when the people got right with God for a brief time, you know. There was a brief moment of a revival when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. But shortly afterward, they were worshiping a golden calf instead of God. There was a resurgence of faith and love for God when Joshua led them into the promised land. But, you know, after Joshua and his folks died, they went right back just like a morning cloud and All that goodness and following God vanished away. Israel experienced a revival under leadership of certain kings in the Old Testament. But you know what? After the king died, their goodness once again was like a morning cloud. Just went away. You know what? The Israelites were fickle, uncommitted, and self-centered people. Just like people today. You ever watch the polls in a presidential race? One will be leading in the poll. The next day, the next week, now they're down in the poll. Then they're up in the poll. They literally change from week to week, all depending on the current events of the time. All without the political candidates having no change in their core values. Why? Because people aren't voting for the candidates based on their core values. They're voting based upon whatever happens to be expedient for them at the time. Had Israel based their lives on what was right and wrong, they would have never left God in the first place. God says, your goodness is like a morning cloud, Israel. Look back in your text. And as the early dew, it goeth away. You can walk outside in the morning before the sun is up and you can see that dew on the grass. Walk out there, you'll get your feet wet. And the water on the grass was like the goodness on the land of Israel. It came in the darkness, but it left in the day. It came when they entered into dark times and they needed God. It left in the good times 
If you only live for God in the dark times in your life, then your goodness is like the early dew that goes away. You let tragedy happen in this world, you'll see a bunch of people want to go to church again. You'll see a bunch of people want to ask God for help. But they're not living for God based on what's right and wrong, but what's expedient for them at the time. Their, their goodness is like the morning dew, like the, the fog. When the sun comes up, their love for God is tested by the heat of temptation. And their devotion for God flies away in the heat thereof, revealing their unfaithfulness toward Him. What shall God do with you, America? What shall God do with you people today? You've been given every chance to know Him. And having done so, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And He will surely do with you what He did with the nation of Israel. He's going to remove the fence from his vineyard and he's going to let it be eaten up you will continue to see more and more of our nation being devoured and you'll see less and less power that we'll retain as a nation and then ultimately the nations of the world will begin to unify in their resistance of God well if we can't stand as individuals maybe we can stand together against him you watch the governor of California. I'm not getting political. I'm teaching. I'm serious here. You watch the governor of California. I was watching a video yesterday of the exodus from California. And all the people leaving California because of the oppression there. And because the state's in such ruin. Because of that ungodly leadership. Gavin Newsom. He's nutty. And so everyone leaves. And now they're saying, Gavin Newsom's thinking, well, maybe I'll become president. Well, now you can't, you can't escape that, you know. If, 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 my nation, if, my, if my state's failing and people are leaving my state, well, then maybe I'll be president over all the states and no one can leave me then and I'll be able to govern and have all their money anyway because when they leave, their tax dollars leave. I've got to have that tax dollar. I'll, I'll just govern everybody. You can't succeed individually. Maybe I can succeed collectively. That's going to be the thought process of these nations around the world. As they continue to reject God, they're going to say, divided will fall, but united will stand. And they'll join against God, and that will be the last stand this world will take against God for the last time. But when they stand together, hand in hand, they won't crucify their Lord again. Their Lord will come back and judge them. It won't be Jesus on trial that time. It will be Jesus putting them on trial. And the one who was crucified will come back as the one who is king. But meanwhile, before that judgment comes, he looks at us with this pity and this merciful arm reaching out to us trying to save us. And says, what more can I do for you than what I've already done? Come to me and be saved before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. I thank you, Father, for your incredible patience with us. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has not acknowledged you as their God. And your son as the Savior you sent for them. 
that they will do so today, dear Father, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as we do, that they may be saved through His gospel, through His work. I pray you'll bless the time of baptism coming up now and the business meeting afterward. I thank you for all these precious people here today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.